1: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
2: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish.
1: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
2: Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says citizens of the universe recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramids. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkbaum.
3: And I'm Joe McCormick.
2: Hey, Joe. Hey. You you like uh stargazing, right? I do. And and Lauren, you like planets, right?
0: Um sure.
2: Okay, so we've established that we are all uh, you know, amateur astronomers. Uh <laughs> one of the things I've always thought would be really cool would be to actually make one of those discoveries of an exoplanet. Um, you know, it's it's just an interesting idea being able to say I have discovered the presence of another body orbiting around a distant star. So it got me to thinking, you know, how hard is that? And um turns out it's pretty hard.
0: Uh, well, it's getting easier. I mean, it's certainly easier than it was um, a few thousand years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah. a few
3: thousand years ago, I'd say it was impossible. Uh, yeah. Yes. Why is that? I mean, why can't we just look up and, and see planets all throughout uh, the, the Milky Way, for uh, example? Well,
0: they don't emit uh, electromagnetic radiation the way that stars do. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, they might they might emit some frequencies, okay, like okay. infrared.
0: They certainly do. Yes. No, that was a very scientifically inaccurate thing for me to say. Um, They <laughs> don't emit as much. Right. And they, certainly,
3: they don't emit light
0: <laughs> of their own. Yeah. They
3: might get it reflected back uh, from the star. And they're but really, they're going really to fade away because they're very far and, and they're, they're very small mm-hmm. and they're very dim compared to the stars. Uh, but I was actually curious, when you think about exoplanets, surely somebody must have guessed at this before we detected they were there. And so who were the first people to actually suggest that there were other planets out there that were different from stars
2: well there's uh there's a lot of different philosophers who've talked about this um even before we got to the heliocentric model of our solar system. So if you want to go way back uh you had a couple of chuckleheads uh Aristotle and uh, Epicurus who uh, were were, yeah, were those, those goofballs. Schools. Yeah, they were just, you know, they're they're sitting there, you know, taking their lunch on the Edge of giant stonework, you know, the hard hats on their heads. I get a lot of my historical knowledge from the Flintstones. So okay. uh, just roll with me on this. Anyway, they were actually having a debate. And uh, Epicurus said that he believed the universe to be infinite. And therefore, it would contain an infinity of worlds within it. By definition, if the universe is completely infinite, then everything is unnumbered. I mean, you have just a, a countless number of everythings, including other worlds. Uh, Now, Aristotle said he believed the Earth was at the center of the universe and therefore was unique. You can only have one center. And he didn't think that because he was
3: stupid. I mean, that was a thing that made sense to think back then. Before we had telescopes and modern astronomical equipment, it really did seem like the Earth was the center of the universe. It didn't seem to move.
0: Oh, sure, sure. It seems like you're standing still and that the sky is moving around you. So therefore...
2: Yeah, obviously you're the one who's on the stationary uh rock and everything else just moves in spheres around you. Yeah. And uh as it turns out uh, that was a pretty popular view for a long time. Epicurus's view was not the most widely accepted. Uh, Aristotle's however was for quite some time. And um so even with Epicurus's view of the infinity world type of approach it didn't necessarily mean that he thought worlds were orbiting around stars. Right. He just thought that there would be other worlds. There are other worlds than these. Yeah. For my uh, Dark Tower fans out there, <laughs> um, but then you get Copernicus coming around in the 1500s saying, "Hey, you know what? I think the Earth is going around the sun, not the sun and everything else going around the Earth." And there, that caused a bit of a, a debate, yeah. I would say, in, in philosophical <laughs> circles. Um, yeah, and then you get a fellow named Giordano Bruno, who, back in 1584, proposed that other stars might have planets of their own, just like our sun has planets orbiting it. Uh, there were some people who disagreed with uh, Bruno. Uh, they they took issue with what he had to say. Uh, it was the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and the way they expressed their dissenting, dis- dissenting opinion was by burning him at the stake. So, yeah. uh, Bruno paid for his, his belief, which turned out to be true with his life.
0: Uh, yeah, people were even harsher back then than they are in YouTube comments. <laughs> it, yeah, I was
2: about to say, it does bring a little perspective, but, you know, Figuratively speaking, YouTube commenters are pretty much doing the same thing to us, but figuratively. <laughs>
0: accurate, yeah.
2: All right. So at any rate, that was sort of the, the – if you want to look at the earliest thinkers who were putting forth this idea of other stars having planets orbiting around them, those would be the, the earliest ones I would point to.
3: But these days we actually have direct evidence of planets orbiting other stars. Yeah. We don't have to guess anymore. We can actually use the instruments of astronomy we've created to get data that tell us there must be other planets out there like us. And this isn't just a a matter of pure curiosity. It actually bears on many other questions in science and maybe even the future of what happens to the human race. Sure. Uh, Now, of course, the pure science element does matter a lot because, as with every question in science, we can never really know how a piece of information once Gathered might be used. Yeah, uh, something that we know about astronomy about exoplanets may prove useful in the future in ways that we don't imagine right now. E-
2: even if that just means that we get a better understanding of how our universe works, which you know some people dismiss, but mm-hmm. that's that's just really cool. The oh, idea sure. that we learn things, new things about how planets are formed and how how they uh, uh, you know orbit their stars and what kind of different bodies they can orbit, or yeah.
0: uh, or what kind of planets are the most most common like how unusual a situation like earth is or yeah. how many gas giants there are or how big or small many planets are. Yeah.
3: Yeah, very good questions. Uh, the other thing you might want to consider is how about earth too?
2: How about earth too?
3: <laughs> well, one thing you might observe looking at us and our environment is that the population of humans on the planet is consistently growing the planet is not getting any bigger and its resources are not multiplying, there may come a day when, in order to continue growing, the human species needs to expand beyond the planet Earth. Right. Uh, Well, especially to continue growing in a way that's comfortable and healthy for all of us. So, So in other
2: words, we have to have another place to go.
3: Yeah. And so you might look at planets in our own solar system and terraforming colonization, or you might look way beyond and say, well, is there a possibility we could colonize extrasolar planets, planets in other solar systems throughout the galaxy.
0: It might be more worthwhile to take a little bit of a road trip to some place that's a lot more habitable.
3: Yeah, maybe depending on how fast we can get there. Well, yes. And that's a question I think we'll look into toward the end of this podcast, but... Another one of the big questions that exoplanets bear on is the question of astrobiology extraterrestrial what, life right what other life is out there beyond Earth
2: is it earth like is it very different from earth life that I and mean, we we have a sample size of one planet yeah when it comes to life we have no way of knowing if what we think of as life is representative of the entire galaxy, let alone the universe. So uh, this would be a huge thing to be able to look at another planet and determine what are the what's the likelihood of life being found there.
3: Right. Uh, I mean, just the discovery of other planets out there in the habitable zones around stars is, is already bearing on certain things like the question of the, the Fermi paradox. You've got that Drake equation we talked about. We did a podcast back. If you're not familiar, you can go check that out, our podcast on the Drake equation. But it's the question of why aren't we hearing any signals from alien civilizations? Right. Um, what's the thing that's limiting the number of alien civilizations out there? And it used to be thought that, well, maybe there just aren't enough planets in our galaxy on which alien life could arise. We now know that that variable is smashed. Yes. There are tons of planets out there. So we're actually narrowing down the question. It's got to be one of these other variables mm-hmm. limiting the number of aliens that could be talking to us but aren't. And why do we know we need to look at planets? Well, I think we can make a pretty good guess based on physics that we're not going to find life forms in stars. Oh, or... not
0: life as we know it at any rate. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to need something more or less Earth temperature. You know, water would need to be in a liquid state at least at some point during its cycle.
3: Yeah. Uh, it's Yeah, it's hard to imagine any kind of complex system like a life form existing at a temperature that a star would operate at. Yeah. Um,
0: I wouldn't do well in it. <laughs>
3: So let's take a look at some actual discoveries of exoplanets. I want to know, when was the first exoplanet really actually discovered by science?
2: All right. Well, if you're looking for the, the first time someone pointed at at data and said, uh, you know, we can be definitively sure that this is coming from uh, other planets outside of our solar system. You know, it was just 20 years ago when we sa- saw someone point and say, this is definitive proof that there is uh, at least one, probably multiple planets outside of our own solar system. And here's the data to prove it. It was a radio astronomer who discovered it back in 1994. And uh, he detected two or three planet-sized objects in orbit around a pulsar in the Virgo constellation. So not a star, but a pulsar, which is the remnants after a supernova. So kind of interesting. It actually got some people grumbling about how it shouldn't count because the exoplanets <laughs> weren't in orbit around a star. But... Um, Uh, The data was from the radio telescopes he was using, and uh, he was detecting uh, the the effects of gravitational force of multiple large bodies upon that pulsar, which Mm. was what allowed him to infer – that there were planets or in, in orbit, orbit around it. Yeah. yeah, and we'll talk more about that kind of uh, uh, way of detecting planets in a little bit. Now, the first discovery of an exoplanet that was actually in orbit around a star... A
0: living star, yeah. Yeah,
2: this dates to 1995, so just one year later, and it was a pair of Swiss scientists who announced the discovery of a planet somewhere between half the size of Jupiter and two times the size of Jupiter. Huh. Uh, that's that's about, actually
0: pretty tiny for for exoplanets.
2: It's also it's also, uh, you know, it sounds like a huge range. But really, when you're talking about galactic <laughs> measures, yeah. it's that's tiny. pretty precise. Yeah. So uh, they determined that it was in extremely close orbit around its parent star, which was uh, 51 Pegasi. And its year was really, really short. It's year lasts 4.2 Earth days. Oof. So every every 4.2 <laughs> days it orbits its sun.
0: That feels so, like feels like a whole lot of whiplash to me yeah. personally.
3: How many years old would you be on 51 Pegasi? <laughs>
2: Why did you ask me that question? I would have I would have actually done the calculations had I thought about it. Um I'm almost I'm om- almost <laughs> No, I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> if I try and do the math, it'll just come out horribly wrong. Well, anyway, they had discovered the presence of this planet, again, through indirect observation. They used radial velocity detection, uh, which we'll also kind of talk about in a little bit. And soon, because they they showed that this method was, uh, uh, you know, a, it was a working method, soon the discoveries just started coming pretty quickly. Now at first like a lot of, if you look back at the history of exoplanet discoveries and you're looking at stuff from the early 2000s they'll they'll say like oh eight whole planets have been discovered so far. <laughs> but over the next few years especially once we started to really know what to look for and we had access to some pretty incredible tools uh, that number exploded. Um, now the first dedicated exoplanet space mission was the launch of the Corot Space telescope in 2006, the, uh, C O R O T. And it provides a continuous observation of a stellar field for a period of up to six months at a time. So it just, it just keeps its, uh, its eye, essentially, on a specific segment of space and leaves it there for like six months to see, you know, any sort of variation in the brightness of the stars that are in that stellar field and when it starts to detect variations it looks for patterns so if you find a pattern in the variation of the brightness of a star that suggests that something is passing between that star and earth on a regular basis we'll talk more about that too so those are kind of the early approaches uh, or the early um, the early examples of this very young field
3: well, I think we should look at some of the most common methods that are used to detect extrasolar planets. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I think the first one we should mention, though it's certainly not the most common at this point, is simple direct imaging. I think this is what a lot of people would just guess is happening. You're just taking a picture up in the sky and you see next to a star there's a little planet, a little dot, and there it is.
2: Yeah, the problem is that uh, that those dots at that distance are saying they're little is is being generous <laughs> yeah
3: they, they just they typically don't emit enough light that's detectable at this distance and distinguishable from the star they orbit to see Th- yeah. this is a problem we have at this point it's really hard to directly image planets yeah uh,
0: there's there's also a lot of glare coming off of well the glare coming off of a uh, nearby stars that's going to obscure direct visualization of, of planets like that. Yeah. yeah,
3: though it it has been done. We have caught uh-huh. direct images of a few extrasolar planets with radio waves and with infrared, I believe. But there are other methods that are have been used a lot more commonly. And sure. one of the main ones I want to talk about is the radial velocity method. This or, is the
2: one I had mentioned earlier with yeah. uh, the approach with the radio telescope.
3: Yeah, so... True or false, question, T T or F, question for you. And you can't just draw that little thing that could be a T or an F.
2: (laughs) So we we have to come down firm on this. Right, the whole word. All right. Okay,
3: true or false, the sun is stationary, the unmoving center of gravity in our solar system.
2: That, well, I mean, I, I... I know the answer to this, and also it's in our notes, so it would be <laughs> cheating. But would you, would you like me to play along?
3: Play along.
2: I think that's true, Joe. Well,
3: it's true. We do go around the sun, except it's false because the sun is not stationary. Wait,
2: it's both true and false? You tricked me. <laughs> uh, because in
3: space, it actually isn't the case that a bigger object pulls a smaller object. Right. It's the case that both objects pull each other.
2: Yeah, the, the force of gravity exerts on both on both masses.
3: Right. So when you have two objects, it it may look from one perspective that say uh Jupiter is orbiting the sun, but in fact both Jupiter and the sun are orbiting the center of gravity between Jupiter and the sun. Yeah. And because the sun is so much bigger than Jupiter, mm-hmm. the way this typically looks is just that Jupiter's going around the sun. Right,
2: because mm-hmm. the sun's size actually overlaps that edge of the center of the the gravitational
0: Right, right. Uh, Furthermore, I mean, the entire solar system is moving, um, and our entire galaxy is moving. (laughs) Right, right, right.
3: So there are several ways in which the sun is moving. Yes. yes. But it actually does move in response to the gravity exerted on it by its planets. And an outside observer could look in on this and notice it, especially in response to the big planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Mm -hmm. The effect is that the sun or the star seems to wobble.
2: Yeah, it actually appears to be moving in relation to those planets. And if you're far enough out where you can't see the planets, but you can see the star, you'll see that the star is wiggling a little bit.
0: And so it's doing a little bit of a shimmy. Yeah, Yeah.
2: right. So
3: the same is true in other solar systems throughout the galaxy. But how would we detect if a star that's dozens of light years away is just wobbling slightly in response to the gravitational pull of a planet.
2: Like, it would just seem like it's a pinprick. And how could you ever be sure that what you saw was a wobble and not, say, the fault of your instrumentation?
3: Right. Well, you can measure it with the Doppler effect.
2: Now, we should probably explain what the Doppler effect is. Okay,
3: so you, you may remember this from physics class in high school. Any object emitting waves, which I I love objects that emit waves.
0: They're my favorites.
3: Whenever something emits waves, it seems to produce higher frequency waves when it's moving towards you Mm -hmm. and lower frequency waves when it's moving away from you. And if you just picture the waves in your head, you can kind of see why this is the case. Something coming towards you. Is compressing the waves as right. it moves in your direction. Mm-hmm. Something moving away from you is stretching the waves out as it moves away. So
2: this would be if you ever hear, uh, you know, uh, cars going by you where they're honking the horn. You hear Nyeow. exactly mm-hmm. right. It's,
3: yeah, the the passing police car is yeah. the classic example. The uh, siren's higher pitched as it's coming your direction. After it passes
2: by, it sounds lower.
3: Exactly right. Now,
2: this is also true with light. It's not just now. You know, sound is a physical. Acoustic wave, but electromagnetic radiation, the same thing, the same principle applies. applies.
3: Yeah. So you can have the police radar gun. The police officer can clock the velocity of an approaching or receding vehicle by bouncing radio waves. I think it's usually microwaves off the car. So it shoots the gun, bounces the waves back. And then by calculating the difference between the outgoing waves and the waves coming back, the radar gun can detect the speed of the car. But this also works for electromagnetic waves produced by distant stars. So as the star wobbles away from us because of another object in its system, the radiation signature changes to a lower frequency, the red shift. Right. You may have heard of this. And then when it wobbles back toward us again, the radiation signature is shifted up toward the blue frequency, the blue shift. Right. So by studying the pattern of how the star wobbles, astronomers can actually learn a whole lot about the planet that's causing the wobbling, including a pretty good guess at its mass. But there are limitations to this kind of thing because the method depends on the gravitational pull exerted by the planet. It's best at finding relatively high-mass planets closely orbiting relatively low-mass stars.
2: You remember that gravity is dependent upon two things. It's dependent upon the mass of the object's in question, mm-hmm. and the distance between them. So the closer and the more massive the objects are, the more detectable this would be. Yeah. Uh,
0: so what kind of tools are researchers using to detect this sort of thing?
2: Uh, essentially, we're using telescopes and spectrometers. Now, a spectrometer, it, it what it does is it separates the light that comes from stars into its component colors, and then detects the subtle changes, even when those changes are indistinguishable to we puny mere mortals right
3: so it can detect with high precision the the light frequency and exactly. how that changes as the star wobbles mm-hmm. in fact there's another method that basically tracks the same effect but in a different way this is called uh, astrometry
2: this actually dates if you're looking at the earliest of the astrometry yeah. it dates to like 19th century oh yeah.
3: wow this is much older and i think generally considered not not as accurate at this point it's we, we've mostly moved on to the radial velocity and to another one. But oh, in-
2: interestingly, it may come back. Yeah. But sorry,
3: I should say what it is. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a way of looking for the same wobbling of planets visually. Essentially, you just look at where a star is in relation to the other stars around it, and you visually track its movement over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. As you can guess from the sound of it, that's hard to do.
0: Uh, yeah. yes, that sounds like you would need a really big telescope and a really high-res camera in order to work that out. Yeah.
3: yeah I'm sure, I'm sure photography made this a lot easier oh, than, that too, yeah. than it was before, <laughs> you know, when you just had to kind of look at it and see, eh, that's about, you know, yeah, yeah,
0: that's, that's, that's <laughs> a half a degree <laughs> off. Sure. It's a skosh. <laughs> uh,
3: but then there's another one where you can try to infer something about planets just by looking at the star itself. And this is, probably the the one that's on the rise the one that just recently got really big the transit method.
2: Yeah, this is where you're looking at the light that's coming from the star and you're looking for any sort of dimming that would be indicative of a body passing between the Earth and that
0: star. Uh, right, a little bit like observing a solar eclipse here on Earth where the moon is passing between you and the, the sun.
2: Right, except on a course obviously on a much smaller scale because right. the distance is involved uh, and, and our perspective. But the idea is that we would use very precise instrumentation to measure the amount of light that's coming from a star and looking for those sort of patterns. That, right. That if would, you
3: see a, a a 1% dip in the luminosity of a star at certain regular intervals.
2: That could be indicative of a, an orbiting body yeah, going around that star. It's
3: blocking some of the light.
2: Uh, now, obviously, this depends on lots of different factors. Uh, the precision of your instrumentation is a big one. But another one is just the uh, alignment of the planets orbit around that star compared to where we on Earth are. Because uh, despite what most science fiction films would have you believe, space, in fact, has lots of different ways that you can come at different objects, and you're not always just nose to nose in your spaceship with the other spaceship. Sometimes you're all cattywampus with each other.
0: Like like we said, uh, everything is moving, and yeah. So yeah. so
2: if you uh, you know imagine <laughs> that you are looking at the star. And the planet orbits it uh, in a way where it doesn't pass between the star and Earth. You know, the the planets in orbit uh, that from our perspective, it would be like a halo around the star. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not going to be able to see that planet because it doesn't pass between the star and us. Uh, and it's too dim for us to pick up on on its own. So the transit method would not work for those kind of planets. So for any uh, system that is in a, in that sort of alignment in respect to where we are, That's great. But for all the ones that aren't, we'd have to use some other methodology. What about gravitational microlensing?
0: This is another kind of rising in popularity method, and it's sort of parallel to this transit method. But instead of looking for a dimming, we're looking for a brightening. Um, and let me explain how, how the heck that works. Um, so, so what's going on is that we've got two star systems that we're looking at. One distant and one really bloody distant. Um, and when the nearer one passes between us and the farther one, the nearer one's gravity bends and magnifies the light that's coming from the farther one, like a lens. Uh, so the farther star appears to smoothly brighten and fade over a period of a few weeks or a few months. Huh. Um, and this is pretty nifty unto itself. Uh, so, where do exoplanets come in? You might ask. Well, if the uh, if the nearer star system contains a planet, that planet's gravity can cause hitches in the the brightening and fading pattern, or even cause a, a sort of lens flare, almost.
2: So, is Abrams behind this type of? Probably. Approach. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and this method is, is really rad for, for finding smaller, potentially Earth-sized exoplanets, um, which in turn is important in our search for extraterrestrial life as we know it, as we said near the top of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's a little bit tough to use this method to tell the exact mass of the exoplanet in question, um, and, and that's because Okay, so so researchers can use their observations to determine the ratio of the masses of the planet and its star pretty easily, but they have to make an educated guess about the actual mass of both based on statistical modeling and um, any other electromagnetic observations that they can make about the stuff. So uh, it's it's imprecise in that way.
2: interesting.
3: That is interesting. And I want to ask about a weird thing, okay. How about rogue planets? Y'all heard about these?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I love that you kept my note in here. (laughs) First of all, they can't touch other planets or they will totally steal those planets' superpowers.
3: Well, okay. (laughs) Hold on a second. Almost all the methods we're talking about here except the direct imaging – are uh, involving how a planet affects our view of a star, right? That's how we gathered the data about it. Mm-hmm. So how can you de- – so if you have a planet that's floating out there in the middle of interstellar space, which – Not that's what, orbiting a that's star. what a rogue planet is. That's By right. definition, yes. Yeah. It's orbiting the galaxy center directly instead of orbiting a star. Mm-hmm. Can you see it? Is there a way – or not see it, but is there a way you can determine it's there and learn anything about it?
0: Okay, so so ro- rogue planets to to really break it down here um are not orbiting a star for for one of several reasons. Um they could have escaped their star's orbit either due to the pull of a nearby star or due to their star going red giant perhaps and and pushing its planets out. Mm-hmm. Um or they might have formed out in the interstellar dust um and just didn't have enough mass to start fusing hydrogen and thus become a star. Or, and thank you guys for leaving my joke in here, they might have just rolled really high on dexterity. (laughs) Um, so, so they're not, so they're not very near, um, any stars, meaning that, hey, they're probably not obscured by light from a star which is cool. Um but they're probably not illuminated much at all, which does make them tough to see. Um but researchers can use uh telescopic cameras with filters that select for certain segments of the spectrum, um and then scan darker areas of the sky. Uh at that point, redder colors are going to indicate cooler bodies like either brown dwarfs which are similarly formed when clouds of interstellar stuff don't get dense enough to become stars, although they are way bigger than planets, um, even like gas giants, like Jupiter. Um, or it could indicate an exoplanet.
3: So have we actually seen any rogue planets?
0: Uh, thousands have been identified in the last 10 years or so. And some researchers think that there could be billions in any single given nebula. Um, There might be a dozen that are less than 100 light years away from us right now.
2: I just like the whole part where you talked about the, the scan darker areas of the sky because it made me think that you have to put it through a scanner darkly.
0: Oh. Oh. Yeah. Well, this is is the nerdiest entry in our outline. Excellent.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't put that in the notes, though, so that that was just me being...
0: Okay, so so rogue planets are really fascinating, especially because we're not entirely sure how they got out there. But they're perhaps less interesting than some solar-bound planets because it's less likely that they're going to contain life as we know it.
3: I actually uh, – it would seem like that, but I feel like I've read stuff saying that maybe they could contain life. Like they might be warmer than we would imagine Uh, – yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just well, speaking. I don't off, know. No. Off no, and I mean, I mean, space. Space here. is
0: warm. <laughs> space is not cold, as we have mentioned on the show before. So yeah, I'm just trying
2: to figure out where the energy source would come from. For,
3: Geothermal, you know, for like uh, deep sea vents.
2: Yeah, it's possible. I suppose radiators. It's it's just what. Yeah.
3: Unfortunately, I, I'm. I can't remember where I've read that now. And our the- Wi Fi is out, so I can't look it up.
0: Yes. Technology. Um okay, but so speaking of technology, what what about the future? Um where where is this research going?
3: Well recently in our podcast about telescopes, we talked about how some upcoming telescopes might really help in the search for exoplanets, mm-hmm. especially stuff like the James Webb Space Telescope and how that might use infrared to teach us a lot about what exoplanets are out there. And that's really exciting. Sure. But and, there are also other methods that could be coming up.
2: Well, and some of them are dependent upon things that we can't necessarily ever de- ever say are going to be you know evident to us, right? Like gravitons. <laughs>
3: Uh, Gravitons. Gravitons.
2: That's that's our little... So
3: you're using your hypothetical particle friend.
2: Well, (laughs) you asked a hypothetical question, you get a hypothetical answer, Okay, lay
3: it on me, Jonathan.
0: Tell Uh, me gravitons. And I like all my hypothetical friends. (laughs) Yeah.
2: They're, or, the less said about my hypothetical friends, the better. Alright, no, no, the reason why I mentioned gravitons is, uh, so gravitons, that's, that's kind of like our placeholder.
3: Yeah, so you have particles that, uh, mediate the other forces of the universe, like electromagnetic force um you have the photon sure so gravitons are supposedly the hypothetical particle that we think might mediate the force of gravity right. we've never found this particle if it exists right
2: we don't we don't have any way of directly observing the this particle if it does exist uh so far but you know it's one of those things that we have kind of to make the math work i mean that's that's a simple way of saying it but in order for us to describe things that are going on it's a very useful hypothetical particle
0: but if it is a real particle and we found a way to detect them than anything that has a gravitational field, hypothetically, is giving off these gravitons. And yep. so if we could observe them, we could observe lots of stuff.
2: Yeah, I like to think of it like the scene in The Matrix where Neo is suddenly able to see the entire world as the the series of ones and zeros and mm-hmm. can actually then manipulate it. We wouldn't be able to necessarily manipulate anything through gravitons, but we might be able, through this kind of detection process, be able to, to see the presence of stuff out there that we never would have picked up on before. It would it would lead to a true explosion of discoveries uh, and would be incredibly useful for things like, you know, detecting asteroids, things that could potentially cause us lots of issues. Now, all of that obviously depends upon a hypothetical particle turning out to be a real thing that we can actually directly observe, and that may very well never be the case. It may always be the case that we only observe the effects of gravity uh, through the actual interaction of masses in space. It would not be, you know, viewing the actual particle, hypothetical or otherwise. So it's a huge if.
3: <laughs> I have a question.
2: Please ask it.
3: We're all talking about planets within our own galaxy, the Milky Way, our mm-hmm. our little uh, neighborhood of the universe. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm correct in assuming that it would be absolute madness to think we could detect something as small as a planet in another galaxy, right? Right? Uh, uh no. Yeah. No?
0: No, that is not absolute madness.
3: Is it really possible that somebody might be able to detect a planet in, say, the closest galaxy to us?
0: Some researchers think that we already have.
3: Whoa. Tell me about it. Whoa,
0: indeed. Um, Okay, so remember when I was talking about uh, gravitational microlensing? Yes. Some scientists out of the University of Zurich in Switzerland think it's possible to use this same method to detect planets in Andromeda, being our nearest galactic neighbor, but you know, still being more than two million light years away. Um,
3: Other galaxies, I mean, just so y'all know, I mean, you might not have a sense of cosmic scale. That's so (laughs) far away.
0: It's not close at (laughs) all. That's
3: way, way
2: out there. I mean, you might think (laughs) it's a real walk to get down to the chemist, but that's just (laughs) peanuts compared to space.
0: Yeah, it's way too far away for us to even pick out individual stars, um, even with our most impressive telescopes. So, instead of looking at stars here they're looking at pixels each of which contain the light from several stars mm-hmm. and and they can they can use that same method of, of brightening to try to determine uh, when weird stuff is happening
3: Bright- you mean the gravitational microlensing the, the gravitational
0: microlensing right so so something Something passing in front of something else and, and causing the light of the farther thing to bend and appear more bright. Um, the, the concept of using this to look at other galaxies is really pretty young, definitely less than 10 years old. But, um, the, this group out of Switzerland thinks, according to their simulations of what this lensing would look like, run against some previous telescope data, uh, from Andromeda that they May have actually observed an exoplanet way back in 2004. Wow! Um, they suggested at the time that it was a binary star, but uh, yeah, yeah. Ba- based on on the simulation, it might have been a planet some six or seven times the mass of Jupiter.
2: That is incredible. And just think, that's like that's just ten years after the first discovery of an exoplanet. Period. Yeah that's, yeah. that's in our galaxy. Uh,
0: now, of
3: course, that's not confirmed, right? Uh, yeah. That's- and
0: and unfortunately, there's really no way to check it because of all of these complex movements of planets and solar systems and galaxies. It means that, that these lensing events do not repeat. Right. We can't yeah. just
2: train a telescope on that segment of and sky. And wait for it to happen again. Yeah. yeah. Right. So clearly, Boom. what we have to do is send someone out, check, <laughs> and come back.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, two, two million light years away or so. Yeah. That's. <laughs> That's no, that's no big.
2: Yeah. Well, uh you know, one of the other things we we mentioned was this this search for actual uh, extraterrestrial life.
3: But how would you look for life on exoplanets? I mean, as we were saying earlier, you're not going to resolve them up to the point where you can look at the surface and see little people walking around. <laughs> you
2: look for activity on a Friday night. That's when life is always at its most active. Uh, no, actually, uh, we're talking about looking for uh, biosignatures, which are you know, evidence of things that life as we know it generates on a planet. And when yeah. I, again, when I say life as we know it, we're talking about the sample size of one planet. Yeah.
3: But we know at least this is one way it could work.
2: Yes. Sure. And we know that there are certain things that are likely to have been made by something that was alive versus something that was not alive. Right. Like there's some gases that we could detect, but we wouldn't necessarily know if it came from an organic life form or a geological event. Right. Right. So so those would be problematic. Even if we detected it, we could never say for not even with any degree of certainty that it came from life forms because it could have come from some other source. Sure. But one
3: example would be oxygen, right? Because it's not natural for Earth to have oxygen. Y'all didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Earth is not naturally an oxygen planet. The oxygen in our atmosphere is largely a byproduct of life on yep. Earth. Yep, mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. So oxygen would be one of those biosignatures we would look for. There are other ones as well, but uh, these are the sort of things that we would try and detect now. Then the question becomes, hey, how do you find out <laughs> that that planet that's really far away has oxygen on it. I mean, that doesn't really answer our yeah, question. You can't right?
3: lean out and try to breathe
2: it. Nope. So <laughs> the way we detect biosignatures is through spectral analysis. Again, using spectrometers, looking at the color of light that's coming off, uh, being you know reflected, reflected off of that yeah. planet. So uh, when we do that, when we look at the light that we can see coming from these planets, being reflected off of them. Obviously, they're not emitting the light themselves. Then you start to work backwards. And say, all right, well, what ingredients had to be there for these particular wavelengths of light to make it to us?
0: Uh, right, because different types of atoms will reflect light at different wavelengths.
2: And they will absorb other wavelengths, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you would expect to see an absence of certain ones mm-hmm. with the presence of certain gases. And because that's predictable, you know, a, a particular gas is always going to absorb the same wavelengths of light. Then we can start to work backwards that way. So we've really looked for the dominant biosignatures that we find on Earth because that's, again, what we, ha- we know to work with. There may very well be other types of life out there that are very different from what we see on Earth. But because we haven't encountered them, we can't know what to look for in that case. So it becomes kind of a cyclical problem. So we're looking specifically for stuff that is similar to what we see here on Earth.
3: Okay, so I want to talk about one more thing. Follow up on that question we had earlier about colonizing exoplanets, because this comes up a lot when people talk about exoplanets. We got to find the habitable exoplanet. You know, where's the one we could go live out our, our our peaceful retirement in the galaxy? I don't know how realistic that is, and I, I don't want to be a naysayer because who knows what kind of spacecraft and, and propulsion systems we'll come up with in the future. Mm-hmm. But based on the kinds of spacecraft we have today, I'm not sure that that's a realistic thing to talk about.
2: Okay, so what are your objections here, Joe? I mean, <laughs> what's what's the issue? Are, are You just think we don't have a style and enough ride?
3: Yeah. What does a fast-moving human spacecraft look like? Well, we could look at Voyager 1. It is like a one-ton object that's fleeing our solar system very, very fast. It's one of the fastest things. W- I think it is currently the, the fastest spacecraft. Hmm. Um, so we, how, how... we may have had something that that I think was a little bit faster spiraling into the sun, but right, right now it's going very fast. And we it's, don't
2: necessarily want to... To the spiral into the sun on no, a search no. for an exoplanet.
3: <laughs> well, it got a boost and, and this wasn't just drive systems. It uh, w- got a very lucky boost by doing swing-bys of Jupiter and Saturn, mm-hmm. which sped it up significantly. It took advantage of their gravity to get, get itself thrown out into space mm-hmm. much faster. Their,
0: their gravity in their own orbits, yeah, kind of slingshot of right out. Yeah, the
2: yeah. old Star Trek methodology mm-hmm. of going back in time.
3: Right, so it, it's going <laughs> more than 35,000 miles per hour, which is Really fast. I've even seen some figures putting it closer to 40,000 miles per hour wow. today. Uh, I'm not sure. I've, I've seen different figures, but let's just round up for simplicity and say you had a crew full of colonists who were in a spacecraft heading out from Earth at 50,000 miles per hour. I did a little math with the help of Google and Wolfram Alpha to see how long it would take to get to an exoplanet. So I looked at uh, Gliese 667 CC, which is one of the ones they've held up as sort of one of the one of the really cool looking possibly habitable planets. It's mm-hmm. about 22 light years away, so it's one of the closer ones, okay? okay. One light year is about 5.878 Times ten to the twelve miles. That's that's far. That's very very far.
2: And that's that's just one light year. You said this one yeah. was twenty two t- light 22 years. Twenty
3: two light years is one point twenty nine times ten to the fourteen miles, or about hundred and twenty
2: nine trillion miles. Okay, so then you take hundred and twenty nine trillion miles divided by. Are you using the generous <laughs> speed or the the super yeah, generous fifty
0: thousand miles? I'm using an the
3: hour. super generous fifty thousand miles per hour, which is about four hundred and thirty eight million miles per year. At 50,000 miles per hour, it would take 294,325 years to reach this exoplanet I just mentioned. Yeah. Uh... That's longer than Homo sapiens has been a species.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so there's no telling what, what the inhabitants of said spaceship would be by the time they reach this yeah, my, exoplanet.
3: My thought was, at that point you're not you're not actually colonizing the planet, you're colonizing the spacecraft itself. Right,
0: right. And uh, you're probably the face of Bo by the time you get there. So Yeah, humans well, would, would
3: essentially evolve to favor the conditions of the spacecraft <laughs> before they reach the new planet. By the time they got there, they might not want the planet. They might just need to live on the spacecraft. They
2: might be afraid of the planet. Yeah. Uh,
3: so I the moral of the story to me is that unless we invent much, much faster spacecraft that can travel faster than light or at least some really significant fraction of the speed of light, exoplanet colonization is just off the table. Like if
2: you were able to get close enough so that you're talking about a generation or maybe two generations of people to get to the closest exoplanet, I could see that being a possible. yeah. Yeah. But if you're talking longer than humans have been human, then that is an issue. Totally. Yeah.
3: yeah,
0: it's not a really good plan B. That's maybe yeah. a plan X or yeah. <laughs> plan Zeta Alpha. Yeah. Right. Well,
3: what this comes down to is basically if you're thinking, oh, no, we're about to use up Earth. You either need to figure out how to terraform Mars or you need to invent some, some spacecraft that can travel near or faster than the speed of light. Or you really got to figure soon. out
2: how to stop using up Earth. Right, yeah, right? exactly
3: right. No, I'm taking it as a given that you're like, we're not going to stop. Right. <laughs> Conspic- stop. Can't stop. Cons- Can't stop, won't stop.
2: Cons- conspicuous <laughs> consumption up is up here to planet. stay. Black Friday's around the corner. <laughs> Let the good times roll.
3: Right, right, right.
0: Uh, uh all right, so so maybe that's not our super best option. Um uh, Right.
3: No, I actually I agree entirely with what you said. I mean it's, it's a no-brainer that the smartest thing to do is to make use of the resources we have in a smarter way.
0: But,
2: yeah. but, but that's easier said than done, obviously. Yeah.
0: But, uh, n- nonetheless, it would be really cool for us to find some potentially habitable planets and, uh, you know, like send them a Facebook message, like say yeah. like, hey guys, what's up? Like yeah, anyone yeah. out there?
2: That was actually one of the things I was thinking of too, is that, it d- you know, discovering these exoplanets and finding candidates that could potentially support life might mean that we don't ever, you know, inhabit them ourselves, because they're so far away that to get there would have this prohibitively long journey. But maybe if we do discover one that has uh, intelligent life on it, that we could one day communicate with said intelligent life. Um, and keeping in mind, this communication would still take an incredibly long time, because even travel- traveling at the speed of light, like your example that you had, Joe, that's 22 years between messages. I send a message out I'm that I got to wait 22 years before it even gets to the person I texted. And then I have to wait for them to, you know, compose give me give a me message the, and then send the winky back. smiley face yeah. and 22 more years for me to get the winky smiley face. By then the movie I was trying to see has already left the theater. So it's just not the but but this is one of those ways where we could potentially actually have a communication with a with uh, another intelligent species, but that would one Depend on there actually being one out there. Two, we'd have to find it, and then three, we'd have to be able to send some sort of communication that they could identify as communication. And four,
3: we'd have to agree that that's a smart thing to do.
2: Which... Well, if they're that far away, it's not real likely that they're going to catch up to us anytime soon. Uh, unless... <laughs> we have at
0: least twenty-two years to work with. <laughs> at
2: the at the very least, and more likely. 300,000 years to work with. <laughs> so uh, I think if you got 300,000 years to work with you, you could really say like, uh, I'm pretty sure by the time they get to wherever we are, we will be able to handle it. We'll be ready to rumble. <laughs> We've been training for 300,000 years for this. So uh, at any rate, it was an interesting discussion and it was really interesting to learn how, how scientists are detecting these exoplanets. I've always heard about it kind of in passing whenever a new discovery comes mm-hmm. around. But I never really looked into it seriously on a deeper level. And it truly is an amazing field. And I can't wait to, to learn more about it. Just because, I mean, I, again, bottom line, we're learning more about how our universe works, which is always cool. So uh, any final thoughts, guys, on exoplanets? Do you want to talk about planet poopalon? <laughs>
3: No. <laughs> Pupulon. Pupulon. I'm
2: like calling puppies. it Poopulon <laughs> cuz it's
3: it's planet poop, poop. You're messing my head up now, Jonathan. Uh no, shout out to all the puppies on planet Pupulon. Yeah. Your your planet is the best one. I'm sure if if anyone in our galaxy gets preserved, I hope it's that one.
2: Yeah. All right, that's fair. I'm sure that all the cats on the internet are cursing your name, but we will we will ignore that and soldier on. So Guys, if you out there have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, there's something you've always wanted to know about. Maybe there's even a question you have about this Exoplanet episode we've just done. You should send it in to us. Let us know. We love your messages. Keep them coming. You can contact us on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Google+. On Twitter and Google+, we use the handle Thinking. Just search for FWThinking over at Facebook. We'll pop right up and leave us a message, and we'll talk to you again really soon.
1: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. And some waves, so we could go surfing. I oh, ah,
3: love that. A redwood forest would be cool.
1: I'm in. Ah,
3: ski slopes. Let's do it. Um,
1: can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances.